We had a wonderful time last night with the young people. We went out bowling. Kai arranged and his wife arranged a bowling time for us, so we went down to San Mateo's bowling lane and uh, had a wonderful time with a good group of young people. So continue to pray for that ministry, and, and if they, uh, I think next month, if you're interested, they're going over to the, the maze over in Half Moon Bay, so with all the stuff going on over there, that big hay bale maze over there. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, you can turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're continuing in our study here, the 25th message. And just to remember, we're just going to continue on with book 2, Second uh, Thessalonians. So if you want to know where we're headed, that's where we're headed. And ladies, don't forget, you can register for the women's conference on the app. You just go on the app, open it up, go to events, and everything is right there. And you can do that, and we'll have a record of that. You've got to get your registrations in. And if you know of anybody that wants to come, make sure they get their registration in because they've got a plan for all the food and everything that's happening there. But this morning, as we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're starting a new section here. We're finally out of the first three verses. Some of you are saying, amen, I never thought I'd move on. Well, I could have stayed there for months, but we've got to move on. So uh, verse 4 through 11 is our next section, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. And we're going to be talking on understanding who we are in Christ. For those of you who are believers, understanding who you are in Christ. That's probably one of the major issues with people that come in for counseling. They don't understand who they are in Christ. They don't understand their position as a Christian in Christ. And they're all mixed up on all sorts of things. But as we've gone through this study, I don't know if you've noticed this at all, but as we've been going through here, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends speaking about the coming of the Lord. Every chapter. One through five. In, in chapter one, verse 10, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us, key phrase, delivers us from the wrath to come. We believe the Bible teaches that we are raptured out of here as the church before the day of the Lord. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that this morning. But chapter two, verse 19 He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? He brings it up again. In chapter 3, he brings it up a third time. In verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And then look at what he says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Guess what? We're coming back with him at his second coming as a church. Why? Because we're not here. We wouldn't have to come back if we were already here. We're in heaven for the seven years of God outpouring his wrath on this earth. And even in chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, we saw this in the previous weeks, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And it goes on to talk about the rapture. The dead will rise first. And then we who are alive will also be caught up together with them in the clouds. The Lord doesn't come back at the rapture. He comes in the clouds to meet the Lord where? On earth? No, it says in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, key verse, again, encourage one another with these words. 
And then at the end of this chapter, chapter 5, he even says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the issue Paul is addressing here among the new believers in the church at Thessalonica was what was happening to those who were believers, first of all, who died, what happened to them? Did they miss it? Did they miss out on this great event? They wanted to know. Will we see them again? What if they're not here for the day of the Lord? And Paul explains that through the new revelation of the rapture. It's a mystery. That's what we call the rapture of the church. And in verse 15 of, of chapter 4, he calls it just that. He, he basically uh, says we, we declare to you a, this, this mystery that is coming. It's not mysterious. A mystery is something that's hidden in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but now the New Testament sheds light on it, so it reveals it. It's brought to light in the New Testament. This is what we call the rapture of the church, the snatching away of God's elect from all over the face of the earth. An event in which Jesus does not come to earth to set up his kingdom, but rather takes those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive to meet him in the air. Literally, the Greek language there in verse uh, 17 says, we are gathered to a meeting of the Lord. It's a specific meeting at a specific time and place that only God knows. One that he planned for the reunion of all believers, whether you're dead or alive. I mean, what a wonderful day that will be. Think about it. To be changed from this body of sin and death in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, it says. You'll be given your new body if you're alive. If you're dead, your body will be raised from the dead. Some people say, well, what if they burned it up? It doesn't matter. What if you're going to do with the remains of people what our wonderful Governor Newsom wants to do? He just signed a bill, apparently that says he wants to take human remains and make them compost. Wow. That's rather disgraceful. By the way, he's also very pro-abortion, as you know, and he's put billboards up all over the United States inviting people to our wonderful state, free of charge, we will kill your baby. Come to California. And at the bottom of the billboard, he quotes a Bible verse. Amazing. I would not want to be this man on the day of judgment. I am sorry. Claims to be a Catholic. Give me a break. As we mentioned, we'll be caught up together with the Lord. Together, that word together, Hama, in the original, it deals with time. Together with, with deals with space. So in other words, we're going to be together at the same time, at the same moment with our Lord to have a wonderful, planned, blessed reunion. And having said all that, at the end of the chapter there, he says, comfort or encourage one another, the ESV says, with these words. That's all he says we're supposed to be doing as believers to comfort or to encourage one another. And then right away at the beginning of 
chapter 5, verse 1, he goes on and he tells him, hey, I don't need to write about this because I taught you when I was there those couple months all about the day of the Lord. You know that it's coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when, but it's coming. And that phrase we've been looking at, the day of the Lord, as we found out last week, it's a multifaceted event in history. It's, not, it's speaking specifically long-term of the day when Christ actually sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives, it's split in two. That is the ultimate day of the Lord's coming. But there's many facets to it. There's many times, there's many events, it says, concerning the times and the seasons of the day of the Lord. Anything after the rapture of the church, basically, is part of that process leading up to the day of the Lord. It includes a seven-year tribulation. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. He's not speaking about the millennium here. Why? Because that's when there will be peace on earth. That's when there will be joy on earth. The lion lays down with the lamb, the whole thing. We're here to rule with Christ for a thousand years on earth. But guess what? There's no joy in the day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness. It's a day of destruction. It's a day of gloom. And cloudiness, the Bible says. It's a, it's a terrible, most horrifying day that's coming for this earth. And we need to make sure that we're prepared for it. Now notice at the end of verse 3, while people are saying, or they are saying, there's peace and security, then all of a sudden, destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But then what happens in verse 4? This is why this is a new section. But. See it there? But. But who? But they? No, but you. He actually switches the whole pronouns here. Notice the change. The end of verse 3, it says, they will not escape. But verse 4 says, but you. Who's he talking to? The believers. We talked about who they were, the false teachers and all those who don't believe the gospel. So I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we just read this new section. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 5, verse 4 to 11. Beginning in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. There it is. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, for God, important verse, listen to this. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the work that you've done in some of our lives to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Lord, today we live in troubled times. There's a lot of hurting people out there. A lot of people are questioning why everything is happening around us. And Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign in all things and over all things. We thank you that we can be encouraged, we can be comforted by your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
So we've been considering this term, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord for the past several weeks. And today, as I said, we start this new section in verse 4. Understanding our position as believers in Christ. Understanding our position as believers in Christ. One thing I want to point out, look at the difference here between verse 18 of chapter 4. Not the difference, the similarity, excuse me, between chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the way we ended our scripture reading, verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Believers are to comfort one another. That's what we're called to do. That's what God wants us to do. Now, the first thing that that one should notice when you're studying the Word of God is that you can learn a lot linguistically when you just break it up into paragraphs, and your Bible has no, no doubt done that. And so we begin here kind of a new section. And a lot of times in in our English language and even in the original language, uh, when you when you look at linguistics and you call it, they call it syntax. And why is this paragraph the way it is? Why is it broken up the way it is? And those paragraphs are usually connected by what we call conjunctions or adverbs. And that's what you call the study of syntax. I don't want to bore you a bunch with a bunch of details this morning, but it's important that we understand this because it it goes right to the heart of the issue when it comes to believing that the rapture is pre-trib, that it's before the tribulation. It's very important that we understand these things. Syntax means that there's a connection between the paragraphs, which is indicated by conjunctions like and or but or because of, whatever it might be. And you see here the first verse, verse 4 of our text, but. And look at what it says at the end of verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then here it says, therefore, encourage or comfort one another. See, if we're going to be going into the day of the Lord, if we're going to be going into the tribulation, I mean, if he didn't make it clear we weren't, if we were going to go in there, what is the comfort of that? Where is the encouragement in that? Hey, guess what? You got, you got, you're looking forward to seven days of God outpouring his wrath here on earth. See, there's a major conflict I have with those who want to believe that believers are going to go through the tribulation, that they're going to be left here to suffer the wrath of God, as we know it, the day of the Lord. And when you ask those who believe in a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, meaning that it's going to happen after those seven years, or in the middle, some of them believe, I mean, where is the comfort in that? When you ask them that question, guess what they say? Oh, it's not about comfort. Where did you get that crazy idea? It's not about being encouraged. It's all about preparation. And then they go on a tire. How much water do you have stored in your backyards? I don't know, whatever comes out of the faucet, I guess. How much food do you have stored in your pantry? Do you have, do you have the special food you can buy online? You know, people are selling it. And they get all crazy about being prepared. Now, should we be prepared? Definitely. You probably have a couple gallons of water, whatever. I'm not saying you shouldn't be prepared. But that's their mentality. The mentality of the post-tribulationist, or even the mid-tribulationist, is that we have to get ready. It's all about preparedness. 
And they're so busy fixated on stocking up their shelves and their earthly goods for this horrible day that's going to come. And their message is, you better get prepared to endure the tribulation of God's wrath on earth. But wait a minute. When we look at our text, what does it say in chapter verse Chapter 4, verse 18, to comfort or encourage one another with these words. That's all he says we're to be doing. You think if Paul loved the church and he knew we were going to stay around for the tribulation and that we were going to need a bunch of stuff during those times, he would have brought it up. (laughs) At least God would have given him some special revelation. Say, yeah, tell tell them they better start storing some water too. Because, boy, they're going to be in trouble But all we're told to do is comfort or encourage one another with these words. We're not told to prep. We're not told even to to store some items for this great and terrible day of the Lord. He just says comfort one another. He just says encourage one another. People say, well, pastor, what if you're wrong? Well, guess what? If I'm wrong and I find myself in the middle of the tribulation, guess what? I'll change my view. But I'm not going to change what I do. What are we called to do? We're called to preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, if I find myself in the tribulation, I'm probably going to be even more about preaching the gospel. You say, well, why is that? Because all around me, there's going to be people that are dying during the tribulation. Over half of the world's population will die. You don't think they need the Lord? Therefore, he says, encourage, comfort one another. What comfort, what encouragement is it to go through the tribulation? The tribulation was never designed for the believer in Christ because of our position in Christ. That's why you have the contrast here of they and you and us. You have to dial in on those small little words sometimes. And you say, well, aren't there going to be believers during the tribulation? Definitely. Absolutely there'll be believers that come to know Christ during the tribulation. The Bible says a multitude out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people will come to know the Lord during that time. Well, what's going to happen to them, you say? Well, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to be killed. They're going to be executed for their faith. Because they won't take the mark of the beast. Revelation is very clear on this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls, listen, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. When did that take place? During the tribulation. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. All those who do not receive the mark of the beast during this time will be executed. They will be killed. I mean, it's easy during that time to figure out who the believers are. They're not going to take the mark of the beast. They're going to say no. Well, if you don't take it, you're not going to be able to buy and sell. I don't care. God will take care of me. Well, if you, if you don't take it, we're going to chop your head off. Well, go ahead. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm not taking the mark. 
And those that do take the mark of the beast, guess what? Those are the unbelievers. It's not rocket science, folks. So all the believers during this time will be killed. Unless you're Jewish. What? Yeah, unless you're Jewish. The Bible speaks of 144,000 Jews who will come to know the Lord during this time. They'll be saved. 12,000 taken out of every tribe. According to Revelation 10, uh, chapter 7, verses 5 to 8, they're supernaturally sealed. In other words, they can't be harmed. Remember, I think it was uh, MC Hammer, can't touch this. Well, that's what they're going to be saying <laughs> during the tribulation. These Jews are going to be marching around, yeah, can't touch me, man. I'm protected by God. It says in verse 4 of chapter 7, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it goes on to list all those. There's also going to be a wonderful protection of God in which he nourishes his people during this time. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, we're told about this. A time, half a time, a time, times, and half a time out in the wilderness. And nobody's going to be able to find these people, and God's going to supernaturally care for them. It says in verse 14, but the woman was given. Who's the woman? Well, I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But the woman who was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Who does this woman represent? Represents Israel. Some people say, well, doesn't it represent the church? No. Israel is depicted always as the wife of God a lot of times, sometimes a disloyal wife, sometimes an unfaithful wife, sometimes an adulterous wife. But in the end, God will bring Israel back to faith. All Israel will be saved in the end, it tells us. He hasn't written off Israel. He hasn't replaced Israel with the church as some people would have you believe. It's called replacement theology. When you hear that term run, because they don't take the Bible literally. They make up some fanciful story in their head. But Israel is throughout the Old Testament the wife of God. And so Israel is symbolized as this woman. And some have suggested, well, doesn't it represent the church? Doesn't this woman represent the church? Well, uh, let me tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible, and you can search and search and search, you're not going to find it. Nowhere in the Bible is the church ever called a wife. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible is the church ever called a woman. When the church is spoken of in feminine terms, the church is always referred to as what? A bride. Thank you. She doesn't become a wife until the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. She is always a bride. She is never a woman, never referred to as a wife. She is a chastened virgin. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says she is the bride awaiting the marriage. You see that in the statements of Revelation 19. So it's better to refer to this woman as Israel, not the church. So at the end, all Israel, it says, will be saved when they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. 
God will take the scales off their eyes and they will see, wow, we actually as a nation killed the Messiah. And they'll repent. The details are there if you want to study it. Which brings us back to what's the church's involvement in all this? How are you so sure the church isn't here? Well, first of all, the church is represented by 24 elders in Revelation 4. We're not going to get into all this today because we don't have time. But there's 24 elders who represent the church in Revelation 4. And they sit on on thrones with crowns on their heads and white robes. And all three of those symbols are promises to the church age believers in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. It's funny that after chapter 3, the church isn't even mentioned in the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's no longer here. It's gone. We're raptured out of here. What I'm trying to tell you is that there's these 24 elders. Well, where are the elders? Aren't they on earth? No. The Bible says they're in heaven. And they represent the church, which is also in heaven. All during the tribulation, we are not on earth. We're not going to be here. And that's why what we're sharing this morning with you is even more serious. (laughs) Because you don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when he's coming back to rapture his church away. You're not going to have time to think and rethink and go, oh, maybe I'll decide later. Maybe I'll get committed to the Lord later. I mean, you need to get real. You need to get serious now, today. Because when the rapture of the church happens, guess what? We're gone. We're out of here. Amen? Amen. Amen. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, I'll just hang out to the tribulation. When we get to first, or Second Thessalonians, in chapter 2, you're going to find out. We're going to study this. But you're going to learn that you, you shouldn't have come this morning, basically, to listen to this message if you're an unbeliever. If you're thinking, well, you know what, I'll just wait, and maybe I'll get saved during the tribulation. Because it tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Listen, and all and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? It tells us because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. These are people who refused to love the truth. I am the truth, Jesus said. But they refused to love Christ and they refused his offer of salvation. Look at what verse 11 says. Another one of these words, therefore, based upon their refusal to believe and obey the gospel, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. What's that? He mixes their minds up. (laughs) They're not thinking properly at this point. He sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. See, you're hearing what is true today, here today. And by the time you walk out of here, you're either going to make a decision to believe it and obey the gospel of Christ or not to believe it and refuse Christ's free offer of salvation. You're not guaranteed another opportunity. Maybe by God's grace, you may get one. But maybe not. 
not something to toy around with, I would say. I mean, you're talking about your eternal soul. You're talking about something that God has created that's very special. Hopefully your soul is something that's precious to you. I mean, what if I, hopefully your eyes are precious to you, <laughs> your eyesight, you're here today, you're, hopefully you're not blind. I don't think anybody here is blind. You can see. What if I came up to you after the service and said, hey, you know what, I'll give you $10,000 for your right eye. What would your answer be? Why not? Because it's precious to you. Come on, I'll give you $50,000. Just give me the eyeball already. <laughs> no, not going to do it. Come on, you got the other eyeball. I'll give you a million dollars for your right eye. I got a doctor waiting. He just, you know, you'll be, you won't have any pain, but you won't have an eye when we're done. No, I don't think so. Why? Because it's precious to you. Is your soul precious to you? Or are you willing to wager a bet and say, well, maybe, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't? Because if you're waiting and you end up in the tribulation, it says God's going to send you a strong delusion in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If nothing else, you better keep coming until we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, unless the rapture happens. Just keep coming back and hearing more truth and pray that God would convert your soul, give you the gift of belief and faith in Christ. So I want you to see here this connection between verse 18 and chapter 4 and verse 11 of chapter 5. Believers are to comfort one another, let's say it this way, concerning two things. First of all, the rapture of the church. We should be looking forward to that glorious day when he comes back for his church. He promises to rescue us from the impending wrath that is here. But also we should be comforting one another and encouraging one another with the rescue of God from the day of wrath. Not just the rapture, but thank God he's saving us from his wrath. But guess what? As I look at the churches today, they're doing anything but this. They're doing anything but encouraging one another. As a matter of fact, a lot of churches are doing just the opposite. What are they doing? There's teachers out there telling, oh, no, no, uh, that, that person's wrong. You've got to go through the tribulation, and the rapture won't happen. They're, they're doing exactly the opposite of what Paul is instructing us here, encouraging one another with the rapture of the church and the rescue of God. They're telling people that they're going to go through the tribulation. I mean, if that's true, this whole passage, let's just throw it out. Because it makes absolutely no sense. It's meaningless. Why would we comfort one another? Why would we encourage one another if God doesn't spare us from his wrath as his children? Now we're going to be going over in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be considering four points. Remember the theme here is understanding our position in Christ, understanding who we are in Jesus Christ. And Paul spells it out there in verse 5. He says what? We're, we're children of what? What's it say? Children of light. We're not children of darkness. We're children of light. 
For you are all children of light, children of the day, meaning that you're not a part of God's judgment, that you're not a part of the day of the Lord. And so we're going to be considering the following four things, the contrast between light and darkness. We're going to do that today, hopefully. And this speaks of the distinctiveness of the believer's nature. Secondly, next week and following, we're going to look at the challenge to believers because of that contrast. There's a challenge that Paul gives us in verses 6 to 8. And that talks about the believer's behavior. Not just his nature, but his behavior. And then in verses 9 to 10, we're going to be talking about the confidence we have because we are children of light. That should give us confidence in our Christian walk in verses 9 and 10. And then lastly, the comfort we should have because we are children of light in verse 11. That talks about our destiny, the believer's destiny. So let's look at the first one here today, the contrast between light and darkness. Verse 4, but you are not, notice the contrast, but you, they won't escape, but you, Paul says, talking to the Thessalonians who were in Christ, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. I want us to see three things here. First of all, it's a promise, it's a position, and it's a practice. It's a promise. It's a promise. For those of you, but you are not in darkness, brothers. He says that. For that day. Well, what day is he talking about? I mean, it kind of, all you have to do is go back. For that day, he's clearly relating that day to the day of the Lord. That day is darkness. We're not part of that day. The more I, I study this, you know, sometimes you get into theology and you, you kind of sit back and you go, well, I can see their point, you know, and you begin to waffle, you know what I mean, in your, in your kind of dog, dogmatic view of things. And since I've been studying this, I've become more dogmatic than ever. We're not going through the tribulation. I don't care what people say. There are a lot of teachers out there. There's a lot, of, a lot smarter people than me, very intellectual folks that have gone on to be with the Lord. Now they, knew, now they know they were wrong, <clears throat> but some are still living. And they fight against the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. And they always have. They want to believe, and they wanted people to believe, because this is what they taught when they were alive. They wanted people to believe that believers will go through the tribulation. You say, well, who are these people? These are, these are brothers in the Lord, by the way. I don't think this is a secondary, separ- it's a secondary separation issue. It's not a salvation issue. But I listen to these men constantly because I gain a lot from their teaching. But I'm sorry, in this area, they're flat wrong. People like James Boyce. Wow. He believed that believers would go through the tribulation. People like R.C. Sproul. He believed that people would go through the tribulation. John Piper, James Kennedy. These are all men that love the Lord. They, they're, they're very intelligent people. They love his word. But based upon what I'm seeing here in First Thessalonians and other places in Scripture, they're flat out wrong. They're flat out wrong. And I'm sure that when the rapture happens and we're going up, we can explain it to them on the way up. 
So let's spend a little time here this morning with a word study, and I think this is important. When you read that, that you are not in darkness, brothers. What does that word darkness mean? See, it's it's this kind of study that can give a lot of clarification to what we believe. The word darkness, if you look it up on your computer or in a lexicon, it happens 168 times in Scripture, 168 times, 51 of which are in the New Testament. It's mentioned 51 times, the word darkness, in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament prophets, basically from Isaiah to Malachi, that's where they talk a lot about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. It occurs 35 times. Okay, so 51 times in the New Testament. In the prophetic writings that deal with the day of the Lord, 35 times. Well, I thought, let's just for the fun of it, look at how it's used in the New Testament. So let's follow along here. First of all, it refers to outer darkness. What is outer darkness? Outer darkness is hell itself. That's how it's described in Matthew 8, 12. While the sons of kingdom will be thrown into, what? Outer darkness. What is that like? It's a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a nice place to be. Or Matthew 22, 13. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So outer darkness refers to hell itself. Secondly, it's also mentioned with the term chains of darkness. Chains of darkness. We find this over in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. This is in reference to to Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God apparently went into the the daughters of men, and the result was great wickedness and immorality on the face of the earth, to the extent that the earth was filled with violence and immorality continually, and God had to destroy it with a flood. Oh, you believe that flood thing? Yeah, I believe the flood thing. (laughs) And you know what? So do a lot of geologists, by the way. How do you explain finding plant material from a hot, humid jungle up in the Antarctica, frozen in the stomachs of dinosaurs that have passed away. I mean, there's so many different things that you can, you know, attest to when it comes to the Noahic flood and and all that God did during that time. But here in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, it says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, That's talking about this thing in Genesis 6. But what did he do? He cast them into hell and committed them to, look at what it says, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. It says that they're in chains of darkness. They're not saved. What are they doing? They're waiting for the judgment of everlasting fire. But it's also used, this term, not just chains of darkness and outer darkness, but the power of darkness. It's used that way in the New Testament, that phrase, the power of darkness. It's used that way in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. Jesus says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour. And it says the power of darkness. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain or the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. 
See, the power of darkness is often a reference to Satan himself. That's how it's referred to. We're not talking about the territory or the atmospheric condition of those who are believers. You're talking about an area that is only for unbelievers. The power of darkness. But it also, as you see there in your outline, it refers to works of darkness. That term is found in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand, Paul writes. So then let us cast off, he says, works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, same author, verse 11. He says, take no part, he's talking to believers, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, what? Expose them. Expose them. We have too many Christians in the church today who are trying to compromise with the world. They're trying to see how close they can get to sin without actually sinning. Very dangerous position to be in. And then they cloak it under the guise of, well, I'm trying to reach my unbelieving friends, so I want to hang around with them more. Be careful. Be very careful. These passages tell us about those who are unbelievers who do the works of darkness. Clearly has nothing to do with the Christian faith and belief. So you have the works of darkness. In the New Testament, you also find it, as well as in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, it's, it's quoted in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, it re, it's referred to as those who, what? Sit in darkness. They sit in darkness. It says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, there are those who sit in darkness. Well, guess what? They're not going to find their way out of that darkness. They need the light of who? They need the light of the Messiah to be shed upon their heart and their mind. They need his assistance to get out of that. But then the Bible in the New Testament, it also talks about not only those who sit in darkness, but those who walk in darkness. Walk in darkness. Turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus is speaking here, and it says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, look at this, I am the light of the world. (laughs) Whoever follows me, what's it say? Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He doesn't stutter. He says you won't do it, period. Or over in 1 John, John writes chapter 1, verse 6. This is obviously speaking of unbelievers. But he says, if we say, and that means you may say it, you may not. You may say what John is saying here, you may not. If we say we have fellowship, look at that, with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Wow. Are your actions following up your words? Are you saying you have fellowship with him? Are you saying you have fellowship with Christ, and yet you're continually walking in darkness? You're living in darkness? Well, guess what? The Bible says you're a liar. (laughs) I didn't say it. It says it right there. 
You're lying. You're lying to others and you're lying to yourself because you're not practicing the truth. In other words, being in the darkness throughout all the usages is a reference always, always to judgment. It's always a a reference to the atmosphere of those who don't believe. There aren't any believers in there. Now, I'm not saying anything that's not clearly seen in Scripture. When I say believers are not destined for darkness, I'm only saying exactly what the Bible says. Now, our post-tribulational friends will say, well, the darkness refers to hell and hell only. That's what they say. That's their answer. Excuse me, look at what it says in verse 4. Back to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day. What day? He says, that day to surprise you like a thief. I mean, you could be a child and figure this out. Just go back to verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that that day of the Lord, oh, it's talking about the day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. He's referring to the day of the Lord in verse 4. Turn all the way back in the Old Testament, toward the end of the Old Testament, Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Famous Amos. Great cookies. Right? Amos chapter 5. Say, where's Amos? Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you go to Obadiah, you went too far. Amos chapter 5. Now, when I read Amos chapter 5, this doesn't sound like believers to me who are expecting to go through the tribulation or the day of the Lord. Because... It also refers to the day of the Lord, this idea of darkness. Look at what it says in verse 18. Amos chapter 5, are you there? Amos 5, 18. If you can't find it, look it up in your contents in the, in the front of your Bible to show you where it's at, what page it's on. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. <laughs> woe to you, that's a strong term. Why would you have the day of the Lord? And he gives his answer, why? It is darkness, not light. See it? Now jump down to verse 20. This is the, in in Thessalonians, we're reading the words of the Apostle Paul, who who was very well trained in the word of God. The Old Testament. He excelled in Judaism above all of his contemporaries. He knew the law. He knew the prophets. Maybe he was thinking of this verse when he said what he said to the church at Thessalonica. Look at what he says in verse 20, Amos 5.20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I mean, how more specific can you be? Turn over a couple pages in your Old Testament to the little tiny book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Some of you are saying, I didn't even know there was a Zephaniah in the Bible. Yep, Zephaniah. Just keep on turning, you'll find it there. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15. Verse 14 tells us the context. Zephaniah 1, 14. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. 
the mighty man cries aloud here. And then look at what it says in verse 15. This is very interesting. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. And if you still haven't gotten it, the the prophet says, a day of clouds with thick darkness. Pretty descriptive language. So it's beyond me how people who say they study the Bible carefully can avoid or get out of the clear teaching, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, how they can get out of that. Because it says very clearly, we are not in darkness. That that day should overtake you like a thief. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. I mean, sometimes you, know, you talk to some of these guys and they just want to believe so much they're going through the tribulation. I just shake my head and say, man, you need counseling. You must not understand what the tribulation's like. God says then in the opening chapter of 1 Thessalonians that we are to wait for his son from heaven who is the one who has what? Delivered us from the wrath to come. And they say, well, that's referring to hell. Well, of course, all believers are delivered from hell's wrath. That's clear. But the point of the day of wrath is referring consistently both throughout the Hebrew writings and the New Testament to the day of the Lord, the day of tribulation. So when you ask me, what's the contrast between light and darkness? I'll simply say it's a promise. It's a promise. We don't have to endure the darkness. Well, secondly, turn over to John John 8 again. But it's also a position. It's a position based upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a promise, but it's a position. Remember, we just read that. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Will not walk in darkness. Turn over to John chapter 12. John 12, 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness... Look at what it says. Does not know where he's going. Have you ever tried to walk somewhere in the dark without any illumination whatsoever? It's hard. Sometimes I'll get up in the middle of the night and simply trying to make my way to the restroom. And it's like, wow, I need some light. You know, I end up hitting your foot on a table or something. It's hard to walk in the dark. Don't know where you're going, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. What's the theme here? The children of the light. This is what we're talking about. What is the contrast between light and darkness? It is the fact of a position that you have. That I have as a result of believing in the light of the world. Who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We become children of light by believing in him who is the light of the world. You have to understand when you read these terms, and I I shared this with the worship team this morning a little bit, 
John is writing as a Jewish man. And, and Jewish thought, the Jewish rabbis of the day and, and, and during the time of Christ, there's many examples throughout Jewish writings that when they speak, they, they speak with what's called contrast. They loved it. If you just go through the Gospel of John and his writings, you see it very clearly. It's, it's really the whole style of being Jewish. Think of what John says in his gospel. He speaks of light, and then what's he speak of? Darkness, right? He speaks of life and death. He speaks of righteousness and sin. He speaks of love and what? Hate. It's a style that doesn't have any middle ground. That's the point. It doesn't acknowledge any middle ground. Now, we have a hard time understanding that, living in America in the 21st century. We have problems with that. We want to see gray. <laughs> you know, we, we want to see the gray area in between. In, in Jewish thought, it's not that way. You're either for me or what? Against me. There's no in between. You're either walking in darkness or you're walking in light. I think there's a lot of Christians today in the church, unfortunately, that believe that you can kind of walk in a little bit of darkness <laughs> as a believer. You, you can just trot over there a little bit every now and then. That's not what the Bible teaches. According to the Bible, you're either in the light or you're in the darkness. One or the other. You can't be in both at the same time. It doesn't work that way. It seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? It seems like maybe we can do both, but we can't, according to Scripture. There's a position that we have in the Lord based upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that puts us either in the light or in the darkness. If you have a relationship with Christ, you're in the light. If you don't, you're in the darkness. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, he says, This is the message we have from him and proclaim to you that God is light. Listen to this. And in him is what? No darkness at all. Not even just a little bit. <laughs> That's one big contrast, would you say? And he says in verse 6, if we say, you may or may not, if we say we have fellowship with him, just stop there a second. What is fellowship? Koinonia in the original language. It means that which we share in common. Well, what is that? Read the first four verses. We don't have time to do it right now. Of 1 John 1. It tells us all about fellowship. It says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we say we have fellowship, while we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. We lie. Now, let me ask you a question. Can we act as Christians like we are in darkness? Nobody wants to answer that one, huh? <laughs> it's like asking somebody, have you ever told a lie? Right? Oh, I've never told a lie. Well, you just did, pal. <laughs> right? Of course we, we, we could say that we're not always, always, our practice always doesn't line up with our position. So sometimes we act like we're in darkness. 
We have problems in this area, but you have to remember the, the Hebrew way of thinking things. It's a total contrast. It's one or the other. If we walk in the light, he is in the light. Well, how far is he in the light? There's no darkness at all in him. Wow. Verse 7, how does this take place? He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's that word. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This isn't something you generate. I mean, have you ever been in a church? Sometimes we even say it here. Hey, after the church, we, after church service, we want you to join me for some fellowship. And some food. And we're going to do it over in the fellowship hall. (laughs) Kind of silly. Silly. It's incorrect. We already have fellowship. If we're in Christ. We don't have to go eat a meal to have it. We don't have to go to a special building to have it. It's a position that we have in the Lord. That we share God's life. There's a good application of this. You ever been in church and looking over the room and you spot them? That person you just don't care for. Don't really like that individual. You become critical. Maybe you'll even avoid them in the fellowship hall when you go over there. You know, you don't want to be around them. But guess what? Positionally, you already have fellowship with them. If they're in Christ, if they're believers. Now, you may not be enjoying it. That's up to you. I mean, I hear Christians say all the time, you know, about certain believers or whatever. Well, you know, he knows the Lord. You ever hear this? But he's just, he's not in fellowship right now. What does that mean? Now, I know what they mean. He's not walking with the Lord. He's maybe doing some things he shouldn't do. But we don't lose fellowship with the Lord because we sin. I mean, our words mean things. That's why there's so many people that are confused today on living the Christian life. They don't understand their position in Christ. They're believing the lie of the enemy. If you're in the Lord, you're in the light. You're not in darkness, the Bible says. You already have fellowship so you're never out of it, ever. You're always in it, even if you're not enjoying it, even if you're not practicing, if you're not living like it. You already have fellowship. Why? Because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's not based on what we think or how we feel. It's a done deal. So the question is, are you in the light Or are you in the darkness? It's a position based upon our faith in the Lord. It's a promise that he gives us. But it's also, some people are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. You're talking a lot about position. What about practice? Well, that's the third point. Look at it. It's a practice. It's a practice. And we'll close with this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 to to 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, guess what? He's still in darkness. There's no life there. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness 
and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, those who walk in the light are believers. Those who walk in the darkness are unbelievers, period. Now, are believers challenged not to walk in the darkness? Of course. I mean, there's a problem here. Those of you who've been a believer for a long period of time, you're aware that there's a problem among Christians. What's the problem? Some people don't act like what they say they are. Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but they're walking in darkness. But they say they're a Christian. They're doing things that are dishonoring to the Lord in a consistent way of life manner. And you can conclude a couple things. Well, maybe they're not saved. Maybe they're just fooling us. That's a good option. Secondly, some people believe this. Well, yeah, that, that brother in the Lord, you know, he's not living for the Lord. He, he knew the Lord once, but he lost it. Some people believe that. Some people teach that. Some people believe you can get out of fellowship and you're not walking with the Lord. Well, if that's the case, you're no longer a Christian. You need to get born again and again and again and again. I mean, that's what they believe. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things, brothers? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33 says this, Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you understand that? It's God who says, you know what? You're justified based upon your belief in the gift of my son for your salvation. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, verse 34. More than that, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Based upon all that information, Paul concludes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A good place for an amen, hallelujah, whatever. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, what? I will no ways cast out. I will never cast out cast you out. Well, is it possible that they're true believers, but they're acting like non-believers? Is that an option? Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever act like a (laughs) non-believer? Maybe I should ask your husband or your wife (laughs) if you're unwilling to answer. It happens, right? We all do. 
Sometimes people discuss the spirit-filled life. This is important, so be patient. But People speak of the spirit-filled life, and sometimes people come in for counseling. And I heard this one, this one Christian counselor who used this illustration with them that I'm going to tell you. But they'd come in for counseling, and he'd get frustrated because, oh, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to porn, and I'm addicted to alcohol, and I'm addicted to drugs. But, man, I had a glorious meeting. I was filled with the Spirit. Well, you're filled with Spirit, all right. It ain't the Spirit of God. I don't know what kind of Spirit you're filled with. And they say, well, I'm just carnal. You heard that? Well, that's a biblical term. It's used of the Christians in, in Corinth. They're called carnal. Some people don't like to talk about this stuff because it's too personal. A lot of people get uncomfortable with this kind of discussion. They don't want to hear it. And you know what? We could all just put our spiritual heads in the sand and walk away and say, well, pastor, everything's okay. Well, guess what? It's not okay. Look at the state of the church today. We have a real problem on our hands. Well, this biblical counselor would call people in and he would... After some time, he would say, well, let me stop. You know, you're saying you're a believer. Are, are you, are you spirit-filled or are you carnal? Where are you? And he would take out a piece of paper and he'd draw a diagram. He'd put a circle over here and he'd put a circle over here and he'd put spirit-filled and he'd put carnal. And then he'd put a line in between them. So you have two circles, spirit-filled, carnal, with a line in between them. And then he would draw a line down the middle, right in the middle. And he'd give the guy the pen and he'd say, here, you know what? Mark where you're at on the, on the line there. Put a mark. And he said they would always mark just to the right of that line toward the carnal side. They would always put their axe close to the middle on the carnal side, but not in the spirit-filled side. And he said it didn't matter whether they're believers or unbelievers. I guess they thought that the perpendicular line was been average or something. I don't know. And they want to let him know, I'm really close. I'm really close to being spirit-filled. And then what the counselor would do is he would erase the line. He'd say, guess what? There is no line. So are you here or are you here? You can't be anywhere in between. It's impossible. According to the Bible. Either you're filled with the spirit or you're operating in the flesh. See, it's kind of interesting. People can be believers and be carnal. They can be believers and be operating fleshly. They can demonstrate the works of the flesh. But guess what? If it's a habit of life, if this is something you just do all the time, with no conviction, with no presence of the Holy Spirit, why is the Holy Spirit there to make you feel terrible when you do that? There's nothing more miserable than a Christian who's living a fleshly life because the Spirit of God convicts us. That's what Galatians 5 says. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for they are opposed to each other. He doesn't say there's a gray area to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which has to do with drug addiction, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that, Paul says. In case I missed one, your pet little sin, anything like that. He says, I warn you, as it did before, those who practice such things as a way of life, is the meaning, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. There's no hope if you're living a lifestyle that way. People say, well, do you believe homosexuals can go to heaven? Sure, if they repent and they're forgiven. But they're not going to be practicing homosexuality as believers. See, the problem is we've, we've, we've compromised on that. Well, you know, yeah, we, we believe no. No, there is no compromise to be made on that issue. It's very clear. They need to repent of their sin just like the person who's committed to adultery. It's not the sin, beloved. It's the unwillingness to repent of it. But he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, here's the position, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, striving, envying one another, it says. See, if you really have the Holy Spirit and if you're really born again, then you know what? When you sin, there's going to be a terrible struggle, a terrible fight within you. You're not going to be able to sleep at night. And if you tell me that you can just go out and sin like a storm, sin up, <clears throat> sin up a storm, and it doesn't bother you at all. <clears throat> you go out and sin up a storm and it doesn't bother you at all, then I'm going to tell you, you know what? Based upon what I know in the Bible, you're reflecting the heart of an unbeliever and you're not saved. You need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. Because the most miserable people on earth are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, true believers who are trying to live a fleshly life. They're miserable. You say, well, how do you know? Because I'm good at it. Been there, done that. And if there's no pain, there's no conviction, and there's no trouble in your heart, what proof of evidence do you have that the Holy Spirit even lives within you? Listen, you're either in the light or you're in the darkness. And those that are in the light have some very interesting characteristics, one of which they become very miserable when they sin against a holy God. In John 3, verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true to the light, comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a practice there. That's what we're called to live. We're called to live a, a walk that is for the Lord, not for ourselves. And so when you stop and you think about the idea of our position in Christ, there's a contrast between light and darkness. It's a promise 
it's a practice, but it's also our position. And so we need to understand that, and we need to put that into practice in our daily lives. Father, we thank you for our word, your word today. And Father, the truth that was exposed to our hearts, Lord, we pray that we would decide in our own heart, even here today, are we in darkness or are we in the light? There may be here those who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. That's okay. This is a safe place. You can tell that to God. You can go before God and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me understand this truth that I'm hearing maybe for the first time. I don't want to die in my sin and go to hell. My soul's precious to me, just like my eyesight is. I want to make sure that one day I'll be in heaven with my loved ones and with you, most of all. But the only way that can happen is if my sins are forgiven, and my sins are many. And your word says that if I put my faith, my trust in Christ, and I trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of my sin, that you will save me. You will transfer me from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, to your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would do that in the the hearts of unbelievers here this morning or that's listening on the live feed. Father, we pray they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to repent. Give me faith to believe in you. And for believers, I just pray that we would get serious about our own Christian walks, that we'd quit messing around, playing games, that we would realize that we're not guaranteed tomorrow and that we should be found doing our Father's business, waiting for that day when you will return for us. You will call us to be with you forever. Lord, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I pray that we would set our priorities straight as believers and really focus on what is important, not just to us, but to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.